Welcome to another episode of the Dan Norton Show. Today, I am pleased to have with me a professor of philosophy from the University of California at Riverside, Professor Eric Schwitzgabel. Thanks for joining me. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure thing. Okay, so we emailed a little back and forth before uh, we, we had this call. And you had sent me a list of several topics that uh, we thought we might discuss. And we don't have to be super strict about uh, sticking to that. But I figure we can at least start with that, get things going. So uh, there were four topics that you had mentioned. And I can just briefly say what they are. Uh, so first was the moral behavior of ethics professors and the relationship between philosophical instruction and real world moral behavior. And then there was what it is to believe something and how that relates to real world behavior, especially in cases of implicit bias or ideals that you embrace but don't act on. Third, our poor knowledge of our own experience, traits, and attitudes. And then lastly, fourth, the weirdness of the world, especially regarding big metaphysical and cosmological issues about how the mind fits into the cosmos. So, uh, sorry, I didn't know if I should just read straight out of your email from advance. Yeah, that's fine. Those all sound like such good topics to me. Yeah. All right. So, uh, <laughs> happy to talk about any of them. I guess we could just start by going with the first one and uh, just see where that takes us. So, uh, the moral behavior of ethics professors and the relationship between philosophical instruction and real world moral behavior. So could you just tell us a bit more about what exactly your interest in that topic is? Yeah, so I started thinking about this around 2007, 2006, something like that. Um, I'd been reading a lot of the ancient Chinese philosopher Mengzi and Shinza, and they have this debate about whether philosophical moral reflection um, improves your moral behavior, whether thinking things through philosophically carefully makes you a better person. And Mengzi, at least on one reading of what he's about, says yes. And Shinza, on another reading, says, well, no, or at least not without certain kinds of important environmental supports. Um, and at the same time, I was thinking about, you know, my colleagues in philosophy, both here at UC Riverside, but also where I'd gone to graduate school, Berkeley, and people I know from other places. It didn't seem like the ethicists behaved much differently than anybody else. They just seemed like normal people. You know, some of them were great. Some of them were maybe not so great. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, maybe if Mencius is right, Mengzi Mencius is right, then maybe it would predict that, that thinking philosophically about, about questions in the way that ethicists do ought to improve your moral behavior, but I don't feel like I'm seeing that. And independently of its relationship to ancient Chinese philosophy, I thought, this is an interesting question. People seem to have a lot of opinions about it when I ask people informally, uh, but no one had ever looked at it systematically, right? looked at it empirically. So uh, collaboratively with Josh Rust, we went through and did a bunch of research trying to 
figure out whether people who specialize in ethics behave any better um, by any of a variety of measures than people who don't specialize in ethics. So that's a little bit of the background and the aim. And you found that they, there's no significant difference between ethics professors and other people in terms of how they behave. That's right. So we looked at a whole bunch of different um, possible measures of ethical behavior. You know, one of the challenges is um, how do you measure someone's, you know, there's no morality that you could put up against someone's head and say, oh, uh, you know, this person's got, you know, 7.9 on the, on the zero to 10 ethics scale. Um, so we, we, what we did was we looked at a bunch of things where we thought, well, these are things you could look at to maybe get a sense a little bit of people's moral behavior. The first thing that we did was we looked at the rate at which ethics books were missing from academic libraries uh, compared to other books in philosophy uh, of comparable age and popularity. And there we found that the ethics books were actually more likely to be missing, that is kind of stolen apparently, uh, overdue one, at least one year or stolen um, than were the other books. Um, so that was just one little measure, but it didn't suggest that the people who were taking these ethics books were, were learning to become morally better by reading the books. Um, but that was the only one where we really found a, a negative result for ethicists. Over a, a wide range of measures, we basically found ethicists behave similarly to other people. So some of the things we looked at were um, littering and rude or polite behavior during conferences. We went to ethics sessions and non-ethics sessions of the APA, and we saw how, how often people slammed the door uh, or versus, versus closing it quietly when they came in or left early or during a presentation or when they came in late or left early. We looked at how much trash they left behind at their seat. Uh, another thing we did was we sent emails that were designed to look like they were from undergraduates. Um, asking about, say, an upcoming class and well, what would happen if they missed the first couple of days. Um, and then we just saw, did these people respond to these emails, right? Uh, did they respond to, we think maybe there's a moral responsibility to respond to emails from undergraduates who are asking about an upcoming class, right? Were ethicists any more likely to do that? No, um, we looked at um, self-reported, rates of uh, charitable donation. How much of your income do you give to charity every year? We looked at self-reported vegetarianism. We looked at, um, the, if you think that voting is a duty, we, we went and we found actual um, voter participation records from five US states. Uh, and we found that ethicists did not vote any more than, and political philosophers did not vote any more than professors in other departments. Um, we looked at Nazism. So, you know, you might think most of this stuff is pretty small. So one of the things we did was we looked um, at, there's this wonderful resource, this wonderful book by George Lehman um, called Heidegger in Context, uh, where he has little paragraph long biographies or two paragraph long biographies of basically every philosopher uh, in Germany during the Nazi period. So we went through and we looked at those and we did not find that philosophers were uh, less likely to join the Nazi movement um, than were professors from other departments. 
um, despite their exposure to philosophical ethics. If anything, they're maybe slightly more likely uh, to join the Nazi party or be involved in Nazi activities. Um, we looked at blood donation, organ donation. Um, we overall, we looked at peer report. So we asked people, one of the first studies we did was we went to an APA meeting and we asked people to uh, think of the ethicists in their own department whose name comes next in alphabetical order after theirs, looping around from Z to A if necessary. Uh, think about the moral behavior of that person compared to other people in your department. Does that person uh, behave morally better, morally worse, or about the same as others? There we found, uh, again, basically ethicists seem to be being rated morally by their peers in the department departmental peers is behaving about the same as uh, other people in the department. Um, so across a wide variety of measures, I think we had like 19 measures overall, we found almost no difference between the behavior of ethicists and the behavior of, we had two comparison groups we often used, professors um, not specializing in ethics. Sorry, and I should clarify, I should back up. By ethicists, I do mean professors of philosophy specializing in ethics. Right? We compared them either with professors of philosophy not specializing in ethics or with professors not in philosophy. Right? And we thought those are the good kind of control groups. They're similar in, say, income and socioeconomic status and social background and stuff like that. And basically, we found no difference over the course of uh, many studies that we did um, in about a seven-year period. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if this might be explainable by as follows. So maybe what's going on is ethics professors are kind of a reflection of the people at large. They, they teach ethics to, to people. And so one might expect, well, the, the ethics professors who have been propagating these ideas, they're teaching people about ethics are gonna be reflected in the way their students acts. So um, maybe it's not so surprising that there's, there's an alignment between the way ethics professors act and the way the you know, non-ethics non professors act. And maybe what's going on is that they, they make, the, the professors make it more explicit um, what for other people is just implicit. So other people, maybe they, they, they've kind of internalized, automatized these ideas. And the professors, they spend their time consciously thinking about the same ideas that are driving you know, the population at large, but it's the same ideas. So it's not that mm -hmm. thinking about these things explicitly makes them act differently. It's just that I, maybe they're, they're more... Uh, uh, adept at consciously articulating uh, what's already happening implicitly in everyone else. Yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. Um, let me give you, let me tell you about the data on vegetarianism. I guess I didn't mention that, but that was one of the, one of the many things we studied uh, and see how you think that that fits with the way that you're thinking about it. So, because I think it might not exactly fit, or maybe it does fit, but in a, not in a totally obvious way. So, um, this was in, we conducted this study in 2009 in the United States. Uh, what we did was we sent 
emails and hard copy questionnaires to about a thousand professors from five US states. And we got a great response rate, like about 60% response rate overall, which is very good for, um, for these kinds of studies. Um, so we got about 200 ethicists responding, about 200 philosophers not specializing in ethics responding, and about 200 professors from departments other than philosophy responding. And in the first part of the questionnaire, we had, we asked their opinions about various moral issues. And in the second part of the questionnaire, we had them report their own behavior on those same issues. And then for some of those issues, we also had, uh, although the respondents didn't know it, uh, direct observational measures of their behavior. So this is one of the big, this is probably the biggest, the most important of the studies that we did. So um, for vegetarianism, we didn't have a direct observational measure of behavior, although I have that now for students and we can talk about that uh, later if you want. Um, but for professors, we didn't have a direct observational measure of behavior, but the, the relationship between the expressed attitude in part one of the survey and the self-report in part two is pretty interesting. So in part one of the survey, the ethicists, I think it was 60% of the, so here's the, here's the question about eating meat. Uh, we had a bunch of questions and they were all, the responses were all on a one to nine scale from, I think it was extremely morally bad on one side to extremely morally good on the other side with the middle point five uh, being morally neutral. And then we had, we asked them various kinds of behavior. And one of the behavior was regularly eating the meat of mammals such as beef or pork. So what we found was, I think it was 60% of the professional ethicists rated it somewhere on the bad side of the scale. That is, you know, one to four on our nine point scale. 45% uh, of the non-ethicist philosophers rated it as bad. And I think it was only 19% of the non-philosophers rated it as bad. So this is a pretty big difference in expressed attitude, all the way from 60% for the ethicists to 19% for the non-philosophers. And then we asked in the second part of the survey, we asked at your uh, previous evening meal, not including snacks, did you eat the meat of a mammal? Yes, no, or don't recall. And there almost no one said don't recall. So I think it was like maybe two respondents or something like that. So almost everybody answered. Uh, and there we found no statistically detectable difference between the groups. Um, you know, there might've been a tiny bit of a tendency for the assists to respond more, but it wasn't statistically detectable. In fact, they were in the middle group. Uh, so, so big difference big statistically significant difference in expressed opinion. But I think it was, yeah, 30, if I recall, I think it was 37% of the ethicists said they eat, ate meat at their previous evening meal. Maybe it was 38% of the participants overall said it. So it wasn't, well, their ethicists were basically giving the same answer as everybody else on average. Mm -hmm. So big difference in moral opinion, not much difference in self-reported behavior, if any. Um, so that's, that's one of the more interesting results, I think, from our series of studies. So that suggests ethics professors are perhaps more hypocritical than the people in the other categories. <laughs> they're less, you know, their actions are not as uh, in alignment with their words as, as the others. That's possible. I, I would put an asterisk next to hypocritical there, and we can have a discussion about hypocrisy 
uh, if you like. I wouldn't use that word in this context necessarily. Um, but before getting to that, um, it was the opposite for the voting results, right? So um, we had uh, we had a question about whether um, it's so on our nine, one to nine scale from very morally uh, good to very morally bad to very morally good, uh, or extremely morally bad to extremely morally good. We had um, regularly voting in public elections, and there we found um, that basically most of the respondents, I think it was like 82% of the respondents rated it as, as good to regularly vote in public elections. Um, but there the ethicists voted more often. There we had both self-report measures, but we also, as I said, we had direct voter participation data for these respondents. So there we found that in fact, the ethicists were much more likely to vote. No, sorry. The ethicists were not more likely, it's complicated. The ethicists were not more likely to vote, but they were more likely to have a correlation, their correlation between their attitude and their behavior was similar. So although the ethicists were not more likely to vote overall, the, the, it was more likely to be the case that the ones who said, oh, there's no duty to vote, the 18% or whatever who said, oh, it's not morally good to vote, they, were, they voted less. And the ones who said, oh yes, they clicked say, you know, nine on our scale, extremely morally good, they voted all the time, right? So there, Although there is no difference in average moral behavior, there is a much tighter correlation for the ethicists between their expressed opinion and their moral behavior than there was for uh, the other professors. Mm -hmm. so, so maybe uh, there's not a general kind yeah. of like consistency between attitudes and behavior thing. Right. So maybe on some issues they're less hypocritical, or whatever other word if you don't like. Right. So now I'm interested in uh, the asterisk. Uh, that <laughs> right. whatever word you prefer to use. Right. To, to capture this non-alignments. <laughs> right. Non-alignment is good. Um, <laughs> let me say why I'm not so keen on hypocritical. Um, I think of hypocrisy as involving making a kind of posing before other people as though you behaved in a certain way uh, morally when really you don't. Um, and I don't think that that necessarily follows from having a, a moral ideal that you don't live up to. And in fact, I think there's something admirable about having moral ideals that you don't live up to, right? So um, there's another kind of, well, there's kind of, think of it this way. There are two ways to get your behavior and your ideals in alignment. One is to look at how you behave and then say, those are my ideals. <laughs> right notice that you're enjoying big beef steaks and then say oh therefore eating meat must not be morally bad right um that would be i would call it rationalization right and i don't think rationalization is very morally admirable it's a kind of self-flattery right the other way to get your alignment to get your uh, ideals and behavior aligned is to figure out what's morally good and do that right? Change your behavior to match your ideals rather than changing your ideals to match your behavior, right? So when you're misaligned, it could be in either direction, right? So, but the fact that someone's aligned, it might be due to rationalization, right? Rather than something good. It could be, here's the other story, right? It could be that ethicists are, have enough intellectual integrity 
to look at the arguments against eating meat and say, you know what, those are pretty good arguments. I probably shouldn't. And yet they don't bring their behavior into line. And in a way that's better, I think, in my opinion, than ignoring the arguments or rationalizing and, and, and feeling guilt-free when you enjoy your giant cheeseburger. Right. So maybe it's sense? just weakness of will. Right. <laughs> they see, you know, this is the good thing to do, but I just don't have the strength to, to do this. So I guess that's not very mm. flattering either. That's not very flattering. I mean, there's no like really great flattering story behind all this, but I don't think it's, but hypocrisy is too, is too harsh a word, I think. Um, and I think this, the, the real phenomena have to be pretty complex. Uh, and there's not kind of, a, I don't think there's a, a unidimensional story going on behind all of this, even though overall the behavior looks similar between ethicists and non-ethicists across the 19 different measures that we used. Mm -hmm. This brings to mind a point that I learned from Ayn Rand, who has been a big influence on me. Uh, the point that altruism as a morality is impossible to, it's an impossible ideal to live by consistently. So at least on a certain understanding of altruism. So yeah. if you take altruism to be the idea that you should live for the sake of others and sacrifice yourself for the sake of others, well, what does that mean? Does that mean giving up your life for, for others, for random strangers, giving in all your money away to people? If that is what it means, uh, then that's going to come in tension with the requirements of your own self-preservation or your own happiness, perhaps. If you're giving away all your money, if you're living like Mother Teresa, well, are, are you really doing what's best for yourself? So now I think a lot of people hold that altruism as an ideal. Mm. But then um, if they also want to live a happy, successful life of their own, which I think people also, a lot of people want to do, well, that seems to be in tension with a kind of Mother Teresa sort of life. So mm -hmm. I think the, the kind of moral code that many people hold is, uh, I think it causes people to be out of alignment. I think, I guess there's, there's a contradiction in, in many people's ideals, I think. On the one hand, they think it's good to pursue happiness, on the other hand, they think it's good to sacrifice yourself like Mother Teresa. So they're, they're kind of caught in this bind. Yeah. Um, I don't know how that, if you, if you have any thoughts on that, but I'm, I'm curious yeah. to hear if you do. Yeah, that relates to a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff that I've thought about, um, including partly what it is to have an attitude or an ideal, which relates to the, the topic of belief that you mentioned in the initial list of, of topics and what it is to believe something and not live up to your ideals. Um, let me, one of my angles on this is um, what I call uh, aiming for moral mediocrity, which I think in fact is what most people do, although they don't put, the, put that phrase on it. I think if they were fully intellectually honest, they might. So I guess I'm inclined to think that in fact, morality uh, to be true moral excellence is pretty demanding. It involves a lot of sacrifices, right? I don't know if it demands that you 
give away all of the all of your money or most of your money uh, to charity, uh, but maybe it does. Anyway, it certainly demands. I think the highest levels of moral excellence demand a lot from people uh, and demand a lot of sacrifice. Um, that doesn't mean they aren't. That isn't um, that isn't moral. Like I I have a lot of moral admiration for someone who give, donates a kidney to a stranger or who sacrifices their life for say the life of a, a stranger or a younger, a younger person maybe who has more, more to live or who donates huge amounts of money and huge amounts of time to good charitable causes. I, I wouldn't want to say, oh, that's not moral. <laughs> I admire that so much. And yet um, I think most of us um, don't aim that high morally. We aim for approximately moral mediocrity, right? So um, I think we look, we look at our peers, we look around us, we see what are people like me doing? And then we aim to be about as morally good as them. We don't wanna be the one sacrificing saint among our peers, but we also want, don't wanna be the one to totally horrible person among our peers. We wanna be somewhere in the middle or maybe a little better than average, maybe B plus if we can. Um, so I think that's uh, kind of where people tend to morally aim. Um, I, I consider that to be aiming for mediocrity. I think when people aim for B plus or they think of themselves as aiming for B plus, there's a little rationalization that often goes on. <laughs> it's like when a student tells you, oh, I, I'm aiming for a B plus, they're probably not really, um, they're probably just an average student. <laughs> um, so, so let me tie this back. I've got a lot of threads here. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly which thread to follow, but I'll let me tie it back to the vegetarianism stuff because there's a nice connection with that here. All right, so here's a possible explanation in terms of moral mediocrity for why ethics professors eat, seem to eat about the same amount of meat of, of meat as other professors. Um, so they could be that they read the literature and they think about the ethical issues and they come to the moral opinion that actually it's better to not eat meat. But then how, am I, how are they gonna act now, right? If they, if they, like other people, tend to aim for moral mediocrity, what they do then is they, they look around at their peers and they see most of their peers are still eating meat. So what happens if you, discover, let's just say it's a discovery, that eating morally meat, eating meat is morally bad, or at least being vegetarian is morally good, right? If you discover that, the effect of that might not be to ch a change in your behavior, but rather just a, a change in your opinion of everybody's behavior, right? Now you think everybody is a little morally worse than you did before when you, th when you thought that eating morally, when you thought eating meat was morally fine. So, um, right, so that, so that um, idea of aiming for moral mediocrity if professors are doing that, then you wouldn't expect their behavior to change as a result of making an intellectual discovery. The thing that would change their behavior is seeing their peers' behavior change, and then they might be like, oh, well, I should change too. Okay. So one direction I'm interested in going here is in discussing the idea of um, what is morally admirable. So it was interesting to me that you said uh, that 
you find uh, morally admirable someone who would give a kidney away to a, to a stranger, um, I think uh, I think that's probably a common view that many people would say that's a very morally noble thing to do. I don't see it that way. And I think this, this is reflective of my Ayn Rand perspective. Um, so I, I'm interested to hear why it is that you think that's a morally admirable thing to do. Because I, I see that kind of as a, maybe that's an, an example of self-sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think following Rand that it's good to sacrifice yourself. I think it's good to do what's best for yourself, which doesn't mean on her view that you don't care about others, that you trample over other people's rights. Not at all. She thinks you should respect other people's rights and it's in your interest, your own interest to do so. But if, so you might want to like give your kidney away to your spouse or maybe a very close friend who, if you didn't have that person around, your life would be much worse off. But to give it to a stranger where it's not really clear that that's somehow benefiting you. Um, I mean, I can see holding a door open for a stranger, which I do all the time. Mm -hmm. If I'm out in public, sure, I'll yeah. take a few seconds out of my day to make it a little easier for someone else I don't know to get through the door, but give up my kidney uh, to someone who, who I don't know at all. Uh, wh why is that a good thing to do? Um. This gets into questions about how, how ethical questions should be decided, um, which is pretty tricky metaphilosophically, as you know. Um, I tend to think as a first pass that ethics is uh, a natural human phenomenon in the sense that um, our ethical judgments are grounded in something about us, some psychological set of psychological facts about us. And as a first approximation, um, I would say that those facts have to do with what people would tend to say or tend to judge to be ethical in circumstances of, of reflection when they're not being biased by self-interest and rationalization and other kinds of uh, potentially distortive factors on those judgments. So the fact that most people would think that it's morally good to sacrifice for strangers is as a first pass evidence for and maybe even partly constitutive of what it is for it to be ethical to sacrifice for strangers. Okay, so you're using what other people say as some evidence at least that certain kind of behavior is good that many people happen to think this is good. Uh, I guess then that that pushes the question to, well, why do they think it's good? Do they have good reasons for thinking that it's good? 
and uh, that's what I would want to hear about next. I, I would I would yeah. say I, I don't think there are good reasons, which is why I don't hold that view. But yeah. um, that that's what I would want to know about, because if it's just you know many people hold this, well you know many people once thought the Earth was flat, but of course, that's that's not decisive in determining. The <laughs> so the issue is, do you have good reasons? Do do the majority who hold this view have good reasons for that view? Um, well, I mean, you could make a consequentialist case, which I'm sure you've thought about, maybe probably more than I have, for saying that, um, you know, overall, the benefit for humanity uh, would be greater. If people sacrificed. Okay, yeah. So that's uh, one standard one might use. What's best for humanity? Uh, I tend to look at it from the point of view of what is best for oneself. So mm -hmm. uh, Rand has an egoist view, right? But you know, it's not the traditional conception people have of egoism, where you don't care about others because she thinks. It's in your own interest to care about others. Like, right. am I going to have good friendships, good relationships with people if I'm acting like a jerk to everyone? Right. No, she would say it's it's in your interest to treat other people justly. Then you will have better relationships. Right. Um, so, uh, I think what's, I guess, um, this is why I went straight to the meta ethics because I knew we would have this disagreement at the normative ethics level, right? So meta ethically. How do you decide what should be, you know, what's the kind of an ethical standard? Do you, how do you decide, okay, well, look, let's say one person says what's ethical is what's best for you. Another person says what's ethical is when, if we just want to be simple, simple about it, you know, what's best for all of humanity, go for some utilitarian consequentialist view or something like that, right? Um, how do you decide between those two different approaches? Well, the meta ethical position that I'm suggesting says, um, that part of what it is constitutively for a claim to be ethical is that it tend to be the kind of thing that people psychologically recognize as, ah, that's ethical, right? And I think the kind of thing that people psychologically recognize as, ah, that's ethical is this is good for humanity. Uh, and it's not the kind of thing where that, and the self-interest thing, especially when it conflicts with the good of humanity, uh, is the kind of thing people say, oh, that's that's not an example of what's ethical. Yeah, so I think there's in a way it's a definition. It's a definition of you know, how do you kind of in the first place at the at the kind of foundation of things say, okay, what how are we going to think about just the very category of what it is for something to be ethical or not? Yeah. Um in in Rand's terminology, I think she might put that point something like what gives rise to the phenomenon of values. Um, so yeah, people pursue I'm okay with that. Uh, okay. Yeah, so um, on, on her view, uh, it, it's it's the, the the phenomenon of life. So living organisms uniquely face this basic alternative between life and death. They can go out of existence, in a sense. Um, their existence is contingent on certain kinds of actions. So um, if, if a living organism is to continue to exist, it has to do certain things, like eat food, 
or build shelter um, or discover medicine so you don't die from coronavirus. Or, um, so your existence is contingent on, on certain things. Uh, and your, your happiness is also exist de dependent or contingent on certain things. You won't be happy unless you do certain things like um, maybe having a job, a fulfilling job or a career is part of a happy life. And if you don't have that, if you're just living off of welfare checks from the governments, you're not going to get happiness. You're not going to develop a sense of self-esteem, which you might get from um, working at a productive job. So our, our survival and our, our well-being is contingent on certain things. Um, and I guess that's, that's what gives rise to, to values. Like if we could just, uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure about that last move. That is right, what so gives I rise think a, to a variety of things give rise to values, right? So one is that, right. But also, you know, we're an evolved social organism, right? So you might think just to tell a kind of oversimplified story that part of our evolutionary history is that as social creatures is that um, creatures who uh, were loyal to the group, who gave to the group, who sacrificed for family, uh, who were valuable members of the community uh, may have been selected for over those who did not. And there may be evolutionary pressures in favor of certain kinds of moral emotions that favor those kinds of family and communicate community valuing um, behaviors, right? So another source of our values, both in us and valuing them in other people, right? So another source of our values might be this fact about our evolutionary history that we're social organisms that have evolved to value and praise certain kinds of behaviors and disvalue and dispraise and uh, other kinds of behaviors, right? So, so that emotional root may be part of what gives rise to our sense of values. Okay, so our, our social existence um, can shape the sort of va values uh, that we have. I think there's, there's something to that, uh, but I think maybe more fundamental is the fact that each of the individuals in a society and each of those individuals, by the way, can choose to leave that society. Like if it's a bad society, if it's a Nazi society, for instance, you might think you're better off as an individual uh, leaving that society, living on your own, rather than being uh, potentially sacrificed uh, for, for the group. So I don't, I don't think- It's not always clear that that's an option, especially if you're thinking about evolutionary history. If you're a hunter-gatherer, can you leave your group? Maybe. I mean, maybe if there's another group that will take you. So, yeah, I mean, there are, it can get complicated, but like if you're a Jew in Nazi Germany, then uh, it's probably in your interest to, to flee early. It's, it, it, it's, uh, 
it, it might well be in your interest to flee if you think there's a good chance that you're going to be caught and thrown in a concentration camp. Um, That's certainly true. But then, of <laughs> course, not all, not, not everyone who wanted to flee was able to. Uh, right. So, but, but I, maybe the, the more fundamental point I'm, I'm driving at is that society or being part of a group is not per se a good thing. It's only a good thing if it somehow benefits you. If you're going to be sacrificed to the group, if you're going to be a slave, for instance, well, is it really, is it good that you're part of the society or is it only good to be in the society insofar as it somehow benefits you? And that, that's the kind of view I tend to take. And I, I think Rand would say, yeah, society is potentially a great benefit. Um, so the division of labor, for instance, instead of having to be a hunter gatherer and then uh, getting all your food on your own, build all your shelter on your own, you can specialize in one thing and then trade with other people. Um, so the division of labor is one great advantage of being in society. Uh, also the accumulation or the transmission of knowledge instead of having to reinvent the wheel and you know go back to caveman days and start from scratch basically we can uh take advantage of all the knowledge that was discovered from generations centuries before us and have conversations over amazing technology like this um zoom so potentially it, it's society is a huge benefit to individuals but that's the key thing it's because it's it's somehow benefiting your life uh, that it's it's a good thing and if it's it's not benefiting your life if it's on net anti your life and your own happiness then i think it makes sense to leave let me do a like a, a cartoon version of my view and this is really just totally a cartoon okay um and i know you will totally object but it will it, i hope it will give the the seed of the way that I think about it. And then we can maybe think about more sophisticated versions of this. So imagine it doesn't have to be a human species. Imagine say um, some kind of simpler social mammal where um, the group, the, the, the entities can only survive in groups. They can't survive as solo individuals. And part of surviving as a group, as part of the group's thriving involves individuals being willing to make sacrifices for the group. So under those conditions, you might have like a certain kind of um, emotional mechanism evolve so that group members detect when another individual is not willing to make sacrifices for the group and they eject that individual and then the individual is solitary and dies, right? And uh, so though, therefore there's evolutionary pressure for each individual to develop an honest signal of, yes, I'm willing to sacrifice for the group, please have me, right? And I'm willing to do it even at, my, at, 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 at cost to myself, right? So please have me in the group, right? So you get evolutionary pressure for an honest signal of willingness to sacrifice for the group which can then be detected by other members of the group. Under those conditions, you might have this kind of emotion. They might decide, you know, if they get more intellectually sophisticated, they might call it something like group loyalty. So then you get this emotion that's been selected for of group loyalty, 
Like, and they, and, it, and this animal now thinks, oh, group loyalty is important. We like people who have group loyalty and we hate people who don't have group loyalty. And this then becomes a part of their emotional reactions. Now, you've got two kinds of sources of kind of emotional reactions of plays and praise and blame. You've got your, this is good for me. This is bringing me happiness as one emotional source. And then you've got this other evolved in like, oh, this is in accord with group loyalty. Oh, this is not in accord with group loyalty, right? And those things can conflict, right? So then we take a name and we say, okay, the first one is prudence or self-interest. The second one we'll call morality, right? And now you've got these conflicts between these two sources of these kinds of normative emotions, right? One that has this evolutionary history in doing what's good for the group and one that has this evolutionary history in doing what's good for yourself. So we have two different names, we have two different psychological phenomena, they deserve two different names and they can conflict with each other. So that's the cartoon version, right? But something like that might be the evolutionary psychological social story for how we have this psychological phenomenon of morality. And I think it deserves to be recognized as a real psychological phenomenon. And then we use the name morality to pull, to pick that out and then we say, yeah, yes, look, morality can conflict with self-interest. So something like that. That's the kind of like oversimple version of the picture I have in mind. Okay. So and then there's a separate question of whether morality, how to what extent you want to weigh morality versus self-interest. Right. So the, to bring it back to moral mediocrity, my picture is most people. They've got the, they have the pull toward morality and the pull toward self-interest and they conflict with each other and they're not going to choose morality every time. They're going to choose, they're going to be enough moral that they're not like out of, <laughs> they're not below average, but they're not going to be so moral that they're sacrificing a lot of self-interest in ways that others in their group are on average, most people. Yeah, so that, that way of framing it is uh of morality versus self-interest and people are balancing them is is definitely a different way of of framing it than i i think of it i, I think of um them as not being in conflict so i think of self-interest as being constitutive of morality <laughs> it's only because something is in your interest that it's moral but i guess to fully um justify that view um, we might have to go back some steps to the meta-ethic, meta-ethics points. Um, but th that's one thing I would want to uh, explore. Like, why, why is there this? So, so another thought is, I had as, as you were describing your view is, or the cartoon version, is that there's this conflict. I don't think there, there is a conflict between what's good for you and what's good for the group and why is that well well, well let me let me just give an example of this i think a, a social system like capitalism which is another fraught uh issue and that would what does it even mean to call something capitalist but anyways um a system where there's a very small government that's just leaves people alone unless they um are using force against each other so i think the only proper role of the state is to stop people from using physical force. So I can't go murder people or burglarize their homes. Um, 
but the state doesn't have a role in redistributing wealth, for instance, on a capitalist view. Now, I think that's a great system. I think people are um, the best off in terms of e economically best off. And um, I think psychologically as well. Um, I think that's best for the individual and for society as a whole, which is really nothing more than a group of individuals. There's, there's no society apart from individuals. Um, but I don't think there's a conflict. Like what I think is good for me is to live in a capitalist society. I also think that's the best society. Um, but on your view, there's, there's a kind of tension between what's good for the individual and what's good for the group as a whole. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, so maybe we could talk about that. So I'm like, first of all, it, can there be such a thing as what's good for the whole if all the individuals within the whole are miserable? <laughs> or is it, only, is it only if the individuals are doing well that we can say that the society as a whole is doing well? Right. Is there really a conflict there? I tend to think there's not. There's a kind of harmony of interests. Well, I think the, in the ideal case, you, you end up aligning your interests with the interests of the whole so that you can, so that what's morally best is also what's best for you uh, as an individual. That's, you know, when you can get those kinds of alignments, um, that's great. And that's kind of the ideal uh, situation. But to me, it seems unrealistic to think that it's never better for the group for an individual to sacrifice their interests right so if we take a kidney do donation as an example then right um if i donate a kidney to a young person who needs a kidney who would otherwise die um and as a result maybe i reduce my life expectancy by two percent but i add 40 years to their life. I'm not sure whether those numbers are realistic, um, but something like that, right? Then I think the group as a whole has benefited from that, even though I as an individual have lost something from doing that. Okay. I don't know if, if I would say the group as a whole has benefited. I mean, one person has benefited the right. the person you've donated the, the kidney to and maybe their family because they're happy that she got the kidney so there's kind of some knock-on effects yep. um but I, I don't know how well if we just the simplest thing might be to if you want to again just be maximally simple let's you know be utilitarians and say okay so now i've added 10 utils to her and one to each member of her family and I've sacrificed 0.5 utils from me and no one else has been affected on average, let's say, right? So then we sum it all up and the group overall is, you know, I don't know, 14.5 utils better. I mean, that's simple and stupid way of doing it, right? But why not? I mean, that's one way of thinking about what's overall good for the group. I mean, if you could actually do that, I, I don't, I don't know that there's a way to quantify uh, utils, uh, how many right, utils. You can't qualify. 
quantify it, but right. So yeah, you can't, I mean, that's silly in a sense, right? But it's what it's, the point is, right? That if you're thinking about what's good for the group and you're thinking of the group is composed of individuals, then, and you've got some individuals who are hugely benefited and one who's somewhat less disadvantaged, then the natural thing to conclude is that the group as a whole is benefited. Unless there's some other thing that's worse as a result of that action, some structural mess up that's happened or something like that, but I'm not seeing the case for that yet. Okay, I just thought of a example, which um, maybe it'll uh, be useful here. So let's say that I could, uh, I could benefit, well, you know, this case is sometimes uh, raised in the context of like trolley, trolley cases. Um, sometimes the example of uh, like giving away your organs to say five different people, like one person needs a liver, another person needs a kidney, another person needs yeah. a heart. And you're perfectly healthy. So let's just chop you up and divvy up your mm. organs. Now mm. there are five people who can go on and live their happy lives, but you're gone. Yeah, no, um, that's uh, now. So, yeah. like, let's just stipulate that. Yeah, I could, um, I could make uh, five other people's lives much better um, if I let them take all my organs and then I die. Yeah. Would I do that? No, because yeah. uh, my goal in life is not to maximize the utils in the universe. Um, my goal is to um, live the best life I can to achieve happiness for myself. Um, so I think it would be morally admirable. I mean, there are other with with caveats, <laughs> but I think it would be morally admirable if someone wanted to sacrifice themselves to save many others, right? And that's one way that you could do it. I'm not, I definitely don't think society should pressure people to do those things, to be to, uh, specifically that one, or that doctors should secretly cut up healthy patients, you know, or any of that kind of stuff uh, that's used often as examples against consequentialist views. And I'm not myself a consequentialist. Um, I, I just, it's easier to talk that way sometimes. So I, I've been talking that way. Um, but uh, if someone wants to sacrifice themselves to save other people and it's done in the right way with the right attitude and the right mood and those people really are benefiting and there's not some weird toxic structural cultural thing going on behind it. I don't know. I think that that's, I would find that morally admirable. So why? Like what? Why, why is that good? And I guess you would, you would probably say better than if they didn't. If you're going to say it's, it's not morally, morally admirable or just morally yeah. neutral. Better uh, than if they, better than if they didn't, but with a lot of caveats, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that people should go out and do this, right? Um, because I don't think that psychologically, realistically in our society, it would be, that would be likely to be coming from a psychologically healthy place or a socially well-structured place. Um, so maybe it's not a great thought experiment uh, for this particular um, point, but, um, but with all of those huge caveats, yes.
<laughs> yeah, so, I mean, can you say any more about why, why that's a morally admirable thing? But this gets to the fundamental meta-ethical question that we started with, I think, right? Which is how do we conceive of morality at root? What is it that settles whether something counts as a moral type of behavior or not, right? And I think that what counts as a moral type of behavior is something that taps into our moral emotions and satisfies our moral intellectual judgments when those are activated in the right kinds of favorable, rational, calm, um, and non-biased ways. So, and those moral emotions are rooted in our evolutionary history and our tendency are, I think, both um, socially developed, but also evolutionary deeply rooted tendency to praise and admire people who sacrifice for others, people who help others, people who behave in fair and even-handed ways, people who are good to the other members, especially of their group, right? So that psychological foundation is, on my view, in fact, constitutive of what it is for something to be ethical. So it's not beside the point to say, hey, look, <laughs> this is the kind of thing that most people say is ethical, right? That's actually like, if most people say it in the right situation for the right reasons, with the right kinds of backgrounds in mind, with the right kind of rooting in their psychology, then that is what it is for it to be ethical. That's just how to think about what it is for something to be ethical. And then there's another question, which is, okay, given that's what it is, how ethical do you want to be and when and in what situation? Okay, so you're, you're rooting the, the claim that it's, it's morally admirable to do something like sacrifice yourself to save the lives of others by giving away your organs in the, the claim that people have these uh, uh, certain moral emotions towards doing such things. And um, because they have positive moral emotions, they, they, think it's, they think it's morally admirable. That makes it morally admirable. Um, okay. It's, yes, it is rooted in that, but it's not just emotion, right? It's also thinking those, thinking it through. Right, so I don't just mean like, uh, here's the immediate emotion. I mean, a lot of people have say a negative emotion, especially over the course of history, have a negative emotional reaction to homosexuality, for example, right? But that doesn't make it immoral, right? It's, but it's, it is rooted in our emotions of compassion and concern and valuing loyalty and valuing contributing to the group and those sorts of things supplemented with careful reflection and reasoning, right? I don't think the condemnation of homosexuality survives that careful reflection and reasoning. 
but I do think, I don't like the sacrificing myself for my organs <laughs> example. I don't think it's the best example. I mean, it's kind of designed as an example to bring out absurdity. And I think partly because whenever that happens, there has to be some kind of bad backstory, right? Um, but, um, but things that are morally admirable, like I think, let's not be the, let's not do the absurd version of it. Let's do the person who sacrifices a kidney for a stranger out of careful reflection and an admirable willingness, clear-sighted willingness to do this because of the benefits of it. I, I think that that is the kind of thing, I think I could be proven wrong on this, but I think that's the kind of thing that people around the world if they were filled in on the whole story and they thought about it carefully and they attended to kind of what their reactions are to it, they would feel a kind of sense of admiration for it, a kind of admiration for it that deserves the label moral admiration. And it's that kind of fact about that act that makes it the case that it's a morally good act. That's the meta ethics that I'm working with here. Okay. So it's, it's not the, it's not simply that they have a positive emotion towards the act. It's that they have that. And they also have uh, a certain reflection, um, cognitive appraisal of the act. They have reasons for thinking it's a good thing to do. And that's a necessary, um, condition of it's being a moral act that they have the the reasons is that correct um i wouldn't pull apart the reasons as though they were some separate thing that needs to be brought in on the side oh you have to have the emotion and you have to have the reasons it's more like you have to have the emotion and it has to survive a process of critical reflection and thinking through um reasons for and against. So um, right. Um, so I wouldn't pull apart I wouldn't say like, oh, okay, and then you need a reason like it, it's good for the world or it's a maximum that you could universalize or whatever other things you might pull in from the side to add to the emotion. That's not how I'm thinking of it. I'm thinking of it as you've got the emotions, you've got the reactions, and the reactions survive critical reflection about things like, what would happen if everyone did this? You know what? It would be good if people were willing to do this, right? What would happen if, uh, you know, how would I feel if my sister did this? Well, I don't know, <laughs> right? You think about all that kind of stuff. How would I think about a society where this was common? You think about all that kind of stuff and the feeling of moral approval doesn't disappear. That, that's the kind of reflection I'm talking about. Okay. Okay, then I, I guess I would, I would wanna challenge the reflection part of this because i mean emotions I, they're just automatic responses we have to things you can't just like directly say i'm going to feel x and then 
I think I think it has to be caused in a certain way. Um, and, I, and I think the ideas that you hold uh, shape the kinds of emotions you you For experience. Sure. Like I, so so you experience a positive emotion towards someone giving a kidney away to a stranger. I don't experience a positive emotion. I actually, yeah. I, I experience a negative emotion um, yeah. towards something like that. So, and I think there, so what's going on is I think we have um, different ideas uh, going on in the background that are giving rise to the different emotions. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So the emotions aren't the primary here. They're not the causal primary. They're more of an effect. Well, it's a, tang it's a big tangly web, right? It's a big tangled web, right? So I'm talking about something closer to, um, you know, what happens in the long term when you untangle that whole web. So you might have, we might have the emotion, we might have different emotional reactions to this for different reasons, right? Part of it might have to do with our upbringings. Part of it has to do with our philosophical commitments. Part of it has to do with maybe factual agreement, things that we think that may or may not be true, may or may, or may not survive uh, reflection if we really thought through all the factual pieces, right? So all of that ties together into a giant complex web. Yeah, I suspect the, the, the main difference is philosophical uh, differences. Like I think I did used to have your your attitude or your emotion towards this before Ayn Rand. <laughs> and right. I read her ideas about uh, the morality of self-interest. And it's since then that I think my emotions have changed. Like just to give mm -hmm. another example, I used to think it was good to, um, like I, I, I had some uh, action figures, Star Wars action figures as a kid. And I thought it, I didn't want them anymore. And I thought it would be better to just give them away for free to a charity rather than sell them and make money off of them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think many people who hold a conventional kind of moral view would also say, yeah, it's better not to make a profit off of it. Just give it away for free. But now that's not my view, mm -hmm. um, which is not to say I'm, no one in any like i'm against charity in all circumstances but i don't think i have a moral duty like it wouldn't be morally better necessarily to give it away for free um mm -hmm. than to sell them and make some money off of it right. so i think it's pretty clear that my emotions towards the, such actions change once i got a different uh set of ideas so right. i i suspect that's the the main driver of our differences yeah, so that's probably true. Do you think that extended philosophical reflection could, in the long run, help sort out whether, say, Rand's ideas are better than, say, the ideas of Mencius or Peter Singer or Christine Korsgaard or whoever? Or do you think that's just no way to kind of get to the end of that? Uh, no, I think I think there is a way to settle it. Um, I mean, part of the reason I, I have my YouTube channel and I, I want to engage 
with with people such as yourself is, so. <laughs> is uh, to get these ideas right. more of a hearing, more of an audience. Because that I doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So so yeah. Right. So good. That was what I was hoping you'd say. Right. <laughs> and then you know, like, let's say we have this discussion. <laughs> I mean, all of this is so idealized in a way. But let's say we have this discussion for long enough that we eventually come to have the same, we see, oh yeah, you know, here's the right view. Maybe it's Rand's, maybe, maybe it's Mitch's, maybe it's some compromise, maybe it's still some other view. We finally really come around to say, okay, like this is probably the best way to see it. Mm -hmm. Then we will have, right? We'll either have your emotions about it or we'll have my emotions about it or we'll have some different set of emotions about it. And we'll say, oh yeah, okay. So that's what's morally right. We both, you know, we both see that the right thing to do was blah. Right? And we feel that uh, moral emotional approval um, after we've finished that intellectual journey. But right now we're kind of in the middle of our intellectual journeys. Yeah, yeah. So um, what's the next step? <laughs> I guess the next step, <laughs> if, we were, right. if we were to continue this, um, like obviously, you know, I don't expect to change anybody's fundamental beliefs over the course of one hour, but right. um, I guess, the next step to make progress on that journey um, is to talk about, well, you know, what, what are the underlying ideas that are, so, so I guess we want to get past the emotions since they're just, I think, an effect here. They're not the cause and talk about the ideas that are underlying the emotions. Um, cause, Cause I don't think the emotions are really constitutive so, so this might be a, another difference I, I, that I don't think the emotions are constitutive of what, of what makes something moral. Um, I think they're more of a byproduct or a, an effect. Uh, I don't know if I'm articulating this right, but anyways, I would want to focus on the ideas that are giving rise to the emotions and then see, you know, am I getting them right? Am I getting them wrong? Or uh, are you getting them right? Are you getting them wrong? And talk about the ideas because you, I mean you can't really argue mm. emotions per se; they're not true or false. You just yeah, have. I'm them. not sure they're all that. I'm not sure they're so separate. Well, I mean, you can't really. Um, An emotion itself includes a kind of judgment. Well, often. yeah. So, right. but it's the judgment that I think we would have to debate. You can't debate an emotion per se and say like, your emotion is wrong. You can say it's based on a wrong premise, mm. the idea that's giving rise, but it's not like you can, true and false, I don't think are the sorts of uh, properties that emotions have. They can be strong um, or they can be, they weak. can be appropriate or inappropriate. Yeah. So and I think they're- can discuss whether an emotional reaction is appropriate or inappropriate, right? So. Um, you know, someone you love dies and you decide that you can't handle thinking about them so much. And so you kind of, you get rid of all the stuff and all the memories and all the pictures of them, right? That's the kind of case where it's like, okay, is that behavior appropriate? Is that emotion appropriate? It's not exactly something that is Oh, let's just talk about the reasons and forget the emotion. It's also not something that is just like you can't talk about the appropriateness of the emotion or not. You can, but it's it, they're tangled together. Right, but I guess like if if we're 
if what we're interested in is like is is this is a certain action moral um like giving your away your kidney away to a stranger i don't think we we get very far if we just say oh well i have a certain emotion emotional response to that action i mean what can you do with that right it's hard to do anything with just that just that by itself yeah right. yeah to make progress on this sort of thing i think we have to get down to the ideas um which which in my view are generating the emotions so there is a tie but between the emotions and the reasons but i think one is more fundamental i think the the, the reasons or the ideas are what's giving rise to the emotions and to to change someone's emotions or or attitude towards something i think you have to change their ideas towards or or i'll just period that you have to change their ideas well i mean that doesn't that's not you must be saying something a little different than the surface of the words right because of course you're going to change people's emotions by changing things other than their ideas right you can you can play music <laughs> right unless you think music is ideas i mean if you think that then you know frame it in a different way but um there are lots of ways of affecting people's emotions right just the experience of living affects your emotions it's not about necessarily always about ideas at the most abstract philosophical level right so part of part of what's going on for me here is that just as I can understand the person who wants to burn all the pictures of the person that they've lost because they can't bear to think about them anymore, just because I can kind of understand that, I can interact with that, I can engage with that, I can talk with that person and maybe help that person forward to a different way of thinking about mourning. Um, and I admire certain kinds of ways of dealing with the death of beloved people more than I admire others. But I know it's like super complicated and difficult and touchy and the emotions are right there so in it, but also there's, you know, it's not just like raw unexcused emotion all the time just like that or so analogously to that i think that there's a kind of admiration that i have for people who are capable of great sacrifice and i think that admiration is appropriate and i think that many of the people uh in the world share that sense of the appropriateness of that kind of admiration. Um, and we can talk about it in, this, in a way that we can also talk about, you know, what's a, what's a good way to mourn? Or when you say love someone, what's a good way of kind of expressing that love? Um, and you can think about it, you can reason about it, but it's not all just like kind of What's in the books it's partly 
about what's lived, what's lived and what's appropriate in the complex story behind it, right? So I feel like there's a complex story behind socially and evolutionarily behind our feelings of admiration for certain kinds of action or our feelings of duty that we should do certain kinds of things. It's a complex emotional and cultural and evolutionary story behind those things that we can talk about, but we don't, but we shouldn't leave behind that emotional root at the same time that we're talking about it. Okay. I just the, the very last word, emotional root. I, I think of it more as like the emotional branch or the emotional <laughs> leaf. That's like the outgrowth. Yeah. And, yeah, and right. What I would say is the root is uh, the rational roots. Um, you know, the, the reasons that are giving rise to the emotional leaf. So um, just a, a historical observation. I think that um, flies are uh, bothering me here. Um, the ancient Greeks, I think, had a more egoistic kind of view than the um, the, the later periods when Christianity dominated. And, and I think the, the ancient Greek view was more in line with the Ayn Rand kind of view that I, I am sympathetic towards. Um, mm. So I don't, I, I think that's counter evidence to the idea that this is some kind of evolutionarily built in emotion that people have of admiration towards sacrifice. I don't think that's what many of the people in the ancient Greece's culture would have had. I think they had a more secular, egoistic kind of attitude, but it was when other ideas, other philosophical ideas came in with Christianity that, that, that changed a lot the West's attitude towards morality and morality became about sacrifice rather mm -hmm. than about pursuing your eudaimonia, your, your happiness, uh, to use Aristotle's term, your, your, your own flourishing. Um, so I know more about ancient China than about ancient Greece, but I think in ancient China um, is closer to the modern West in those respects and farther from the way that you're portraying ancient Greece. So like if you think about the most famous philosophy from ancient China, Confucianism, right? Confucianism has at its root um, a willingness to sacrifice and work hard for your country and elders, your family. So it's not just a kind of invention of Christianity, although maybe that's an important part of the story in the West. Yeah, I, so I, I think most cultures throughout history um, have had a, a sacrificial, a view that it's good to sacrifice. So it's kind of a primitive view of, that goes back to, you know, I think ancient tribes where um, maybe they even performed human sacrifices. Uh, I think some of the, was it the Aztecs who, who did that? They sacrificed even human beings. And it was, I think it was with, perhaps for the first time, 
uh, in ancient Greece, the cradle of Western civilization, that you had a individualistic morality where the individual was seen as um, sacrosanct and his duty is not to live his life for the sake of the tribe or his family, his parents, his elders, his society. Rather, he has a right to live for his own sake. Um, I think that was new in ancient Greece. And so, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know as much about China, but that, uh, but, but just given my general knowledge of world history is that, yeah, it, it was unique to ancient Greece that it had this uh, secular, this worldly pro-individual kind of view of the world, but it didn't last. It, it, it subsided uh, in the middle ages. I mean, and even before that with Rome, it started to, to fall away. Um, so let me invite you to another view, okay. which in some respects would be closer to my own, <laughs> but in other respects might not involve changing very much in your view, which would be to say that the ancient Greek view as you're characterizing it and the Randian view is psychologically unusual and culturally unusual. And that there is a phenomenon, a cross-cultural human phenomenon of tending to value in a certain kind of moral way, people's willingness to sacrifice their self-interest for the good of others when it's appropriate and not excessively and fair and not, you know, various caveats. Um, that there's a kind of, there's a, a culturally widespread tendency to think that way. Then we could just define morality as the stuff, the kind of behavior that fits with that cross-cultural, general psychological fact about human beings. And say, okay, let's, that's, we're just gonna use the word morality to refer to the kind of stuff that's, that people who have that psychology approve of. And then you say, and I don't care about that, <laughs> right? This is the Randian move or whatever you say, you know, to the extent that conflicts with self-interest, it doesn't, maybe as much as some people would say, right? But to the extent that it does, then I don't care about it. What's wrong with that way of uh, framing things? Hmm. So just uh, surrendering the term morality to, to the view that it's, it's okay to, to uh, sacrifice, or that it's good, not just okay, to sacrifice. Um, I think you need some concept to denote what's good without yet taking a position on a particular content. Uh, I think mm -hmm. it's, it's probably useful to have some term that uh, just denotes what we ought to do. All now, these yeah. people think what we ought to do is sacrifice for, for others. Mm -hmm. And another view is what we ought to do is not sacrifice. We should live for our own sake. Um, so I think in the end, this might just be kind of a wordplay or a linguistic move rather than really 
a substantive move because there's still going to be the issue of okay well you want to call call that morality okay fine but now i'm going to say that's bad you ought not right. to be moral then right so we could we could do this we could say i'm okay with it as a linguistic move if you want and then you know we can play with that but um so here's something if you're willing at least as a linguistic move to say this we could say okay look we're going to give the word morality to this stuff that you know is kind of majority of cultures across time and people across time saying oh, it's good in certain respects in certain ways under certain conditions for people to sacrifice call whatever it is that that kind of way of thinking approves of call that what's morally good and then call what's in your self-interest what's prudentially good and then have another term like say good all things considered or whatever mm -hmm. right and then there's an open question okay what's good all things considered is it what's morally good is it what's prudentially good is it some mix of the two um and that then becomes that was one way of thinking through the debate and then you could take say the randian view that you've been articulating and say well that's the view that what's good all things considered is the same as what's prudentially good um uh when the what's prudentially good and what's morally good conflict but then someone else say Kant might say, or Peter Singer or whoever might say, no, what's good all things considered. I don't think actually Peter Singer would necessarily say this, but what's good all things considered is what's morally good. Um, and then you might have room for another view that says, well, what's good all things considered is some mix, maybe Susan Wolf, right? And say what's good all things considered is some mix of these things, right? You've got to kind of weigh what's prudentially good against what's morally good and sometimes the prudential will win and sometimes the moral will win i mean would that be a way of framing the debate that's would pass muster with you uh i don't know i would i would have to think about that so i mean maybe it's maybe it's a way of stopping a immediate objection <laughs> but um I guess uh, I don't know that in the end that would be a, a workable uh, way to come at it. I guess maybe the notion of good is a good place to go since that's kind of tying all these views together. You've got this kind of good and you've got this other kind of good. And then you've got all things considered good. So we're, we're relying on this notion of good um as to we're using that to build our conceptual framework and i, I guess i would want to dig into that like where does this notion of good come from and if we get clear about that i think maybe we would conclude that actually what we're calling morally good in the example as you were just setting up isn't good in the final mm -hmm. analysis and only the stuff that in the example you just set up we were calling prudentially good only that is good mm -hmm. in the final analysis right so I, I think that's maybe the the direction this this would go if we were to talk about this long enough um is we would focus on this basic notion of good and then see how if we 
were consistent about that, it would go in one direction. I, I think that's what might happen. So this kind of ties back into what I said earlier about, uh, about the concept of value. So there's this issue, what gives rise to the concept of value? Ayn Rand, this is the, one of the fundamental questions she asks in her, her article, The Objectivist Ethics. What gives rise to this concept of value? Which I think, I don't know if it's exactly a synonym of the concept good. Um, she defines value as that which one acts to gain and or keep. So food, for example, you act to gain that. So that's a value. Or shelter, that's another thing you act to gain. Anything you act to gain and or keep is in her terms a value. Maybe you could also say mm. it's a good in some sense. Um, mm. But there are, uh, and then, so tying back to another thing that came up earlier is what gives rise to this whole phenomenon of things acting to gain and or keep stuff is the phenomenon of life. It's because you're a living organism and you face this alternative of life or death that you act to gain and or keep stuff. Rocks who don't face the alternative of life or death, they just sit there. There's no reason for them to act to gain anything, you know, or a book. It has, it doesn't face this alternative of life or death, so it has no reason to act. So she sees life as the, the thing that's giving rise to the whole phenomenon of values, of things acting to pursue things. And if we, if we analyze this long enough of what does it really require to achieve life, then I think it's, it's going to go in a certain direction. And, and things like giving your organs away to strangers is going to be against your life. So there's going to be a reason not to do an action like that. Whereas, you know, keeping your organs, there is reason to do that. Um, so kind of a long answer but i i, I would mm. want to dig into this notion of good and then try to uh unpack what that involves right. and i think that would probably take us in one direction rather than the <laughs> other but right. you know we could see yeah um the way that you're characterizing rand's view sounds to me kind of more motivationally reductive than I would be inclined to think. And I don't know if that's because you're, you know, simplifying it because you just got to present it in a couple sentences or whether that's really how the story works. But the way that I think of things is we kind of already find ourselves living in the world with a lot of values, a lot of things we care about. I'm not sure I like the phrase of getting necessarily, but already I think turns it in a certain way. There's a, can we talk about caring instead? I think we find ourselves caring about all kinds of things. And there are all kinds of reasons that we care about things. We care intensely that certain sports teams win. <laughs> like, why would that matter in a certain sense, right? Right. We care about our children and our parents. We care about social esteem. We care about getting a tasty meal. We have a, an immensely complex web of things that we kind of already find ourselves caring about that don't reduce to just one thing like the struggle for life or something like that, right? 
And among the things we care about are moral things like being treated fairly and seeing other people being treated fairly. Um, uh, so I think we kind of already find ourselves with a wide network of, of things that we value. Um, and the question is, and I think humans in general, and here I guess I differ for some others, but I, but I think humans in general tend to be at root kind of similar. There's a lot of different kind of cultural decorations we put on it. But at root, we tend to care about the same kinds of things. We tend to admire a lot of times the same kinds of things. There are different, you know, of course, there are people who are unusual and there are all kinds of different ways it manifests. But there's something, I think, common in the human heart that admires and cares about all kinds of different things, including moral things. And that is the where values spring from, not from of the struggle to survive, which is just one of many struggles we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I do think that all caring does use the term reductive, so it all reduces back to life. I think that's, it, it does, or I don't know if reduces is the right term, but it, it stems from the fact that we're, we're living I, don't, I think if we weren't living, I mean, you just think of any inanimate object, um, this microphone, <laughs> I mean, it's not living. It has no reason. I mean, I was going to say it has no reason to care about anything, but it has no reason, period, because it's not even conscious. That's another whole discussion. Right. Um, if you're a panpsychist, maybe you think it is conscious. But, <laughs> but um, you know, taking a common view that, you know, there are inanimate things, there are unconscious things. Um, Could consciousness be the root more than living? Would, would, could there be a living thing that was not conscious? Well, plants. So or I think a conscious thing that was not living. And which one? And can that get us at something like value? So I think if it were, I, I do think there are living things that are not conscious, namely plants. Yeah. So, but I, but I think plants have values. So um, they go after food, sunlight, water. Um, I mean, these are things that they need to continue in existence. And if they don't act to gain these things, they're going to go out of existence. So, um, hmm. I, there was some, uh, discussion of Rand on with Rand about whether plants have values in a literal sense or only kind of a sense analogous to conscious organisms. I, I'm not sure hmm. what her view on that was. I think it might've recently been published in some secondary literature but anyways um i think there are living things that uh are not conscious but they do have values i don't think anything could be alive without values um in some sense of values but as to the reverse could there be something conscious that's not living i i don't think so but if it so if, if there was just, like a conscious robot, if you could make something like that, you would yeah. say, oh, that, that count. Like to imagine C-3PO from Star Wars or whatever, right? So you'd say, so C-3PO is a living thing, even though 
he's not biological. Well, I wouldn't say he's living. Um, so he wouldn't have values. Well, I mean, right. we have, so we're I, stipulating that he's conscious. I mean, well, no, no, no. I, I'm, I, I, I'm, well, I, I was going to say that I don't think there are any things that are conscious, but not living. I think everything is as conscious is living. But if, if we can somehow uh, not observe that fact and stipulate that there could be something conscious that's not living, I don't think it would have any reason to use its consciousness for anything. Because um, it's, unless it could feel pleasure or pain. So, well, let's say, so yeah, I don't know what you think about, you know, the possibility of robot consciousness. It sounds like you might be on the skeptical side. <laughs> uh, so that might be throwing this conversation for a little bit of a loop. Yeah. But, um, I guess I don't think that it's impossible that we could create, I mean, I think it's an open question. So I'm willing to stipulate it either side for the sake of philosophical debate uh, that we could create at some point an artificial being, a robot that actually had conscious experiences, including pleasure and pain. Such an entity might not count as living by certain biological definitions of living, but it would care about things. Well, I would, I would want to know, like, like how, how would that work? Like, why would it care about anything if it's, well, so if, if it can experience pleasure or pain, then I can see how it would care about that. Because those are yes, um, but then can we make sense of that? Like, how could something experience pleasure or pain? Well, so I mean, I guess it just depends on what you're made of. <laughs> like, if we think that um, uh, consciousness is given rise to by a certain organization of matter, okay, um, then okay. Um, but is it possible for us to come up with a could there be an organization of matter that gives rise to consciousness that is not also living <laughs> it maybe partly depends on your definition of living which is why i kind of i could see people going either way on a thought experiment like c3po right because not a biological organism doesn't have an evolutionary history doesn't reproduce so in a certain biological sense not living in another sense, you know, you know, if someone were to shoot C-3PO in the head and C-3PO were to fall on the floor, floor Princess Leia might say, oh, no, he's dead, right? And there'd be a sense in which that was right, <laughs> right? So there's another sense in which maybe you want to say that, that, that these creatures are living. Um, but kind of the thought that I'm having is... Yeah, I'm not sure I want to say that plants have values. To me, it seems more like um, if we mean values in a kind of robust sense, or maybe we don't, but let's say we mean values in a kind of robust sense, then it's kind of the conscious beings that have values. It's C3PO, whether he counts as living or not, and it's us, and it's my dog, um, but it's not my firm. And those conscious beings have values that they kind of are to some extent born with uh, and to some extent get through their life experiences and their enculturation. And those values are pretty diverse and they include lots of things. Um, 
besides the value to continue on. Um, and they include at root, I think, and unreplaceably um, for most, uh, concern for the welfare of others. So, so that kind of concern for the welfare of others, which is, I think, ineradicably part of our nature and might or might not be built into an entity like C3PO is where our personal lived values spring from. Okay. Um, just before we go on, uh, this I'm sitting under a tree, which is like little pieces <laughs> of pollen are oh, no. <laughs> dropping down on my, my computer, yeah. which is yeah. a little distracting. So uh, would you mind if I uh, pause this for a, a minute and then relocate to, okay, my, my, the other thing is my battery is getting pretty low, so. Oh, yeah, you mentioned that before we started. Let me give you, let me tell you, a, give me a thought experiment from Mencius, which okay. um, is very influential, which I liked a lot. I wonder what your reaction to it would be. Um, so Mencius says that anyone who saw a child crawling and about to fall into a well would be, if they saw this suddenly, would be have a, a moment of compassion for the child and a moment of wanting to save the child from falling into the well. And that this would not be because they disliked the sound of the child's, the sound of the child's cries when it hit the bottom of the well, or if they wanted to get in with good with the parents they want to become famous in the village it would be something it, it's not for any of those self-serving reasons that Munches thinks that everybody has in their heart this kind of immediate compassion for that child in that situation of danger at least if they come upon it suddenly uh with kind of their guard down and he thinks that 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 compassion that we have, that, that's a kind of telltale sign that there's something universal in the human heart that um, values others, but not out of any kind of self-serving motive. I guess I, I'm inclined to agree with Mencius about that and think that's that's written in us and that the morality is something that speaks to that in us and then that's something that's appropriate and it's an emotion that is good and right to have that i value in myself and that i value in other people and doesn't need to be then grounded in some further set of other values that are more basic than it I think that is, uh, well, for, for one thing, I, I doubt it's, it's, I don't know that it's universal. I think yeah. it, it's, it may be very widespread, but I, I think there, there may be people who, who don't have that emotion towards it. So for instance, like nihilists, <laughs> maybe people yeah. who, who would do Maybe. something like be a suicide bomber or uh, another type of person that came to mind is just someone who is depressed 
who maybe they can't feel they can't bring themselves to care about anything they're just they they feel so drained um or i mean they're kind of dead to the world in a way emotionally dead Um, i think i think maybe it's not strictly everybody but even a depressed person and even a philosophical nihilist i think from for mungza there is it's he does say that you suddenly come across the situation right so i can imagine a depressed person or a nihilist and suddenly there's that baby about to fall in the well like ah (laughs) right Uh you'd have to be really deep in to be like right to suddenly come upon it and be like you're about to fall in the well I mean, I think you got to yeah. gird yourself up, as it were, to that reaction, <laughs> right? Or you might think if you're a Nazi and it's a Jew, oh, better for the baby to fall in or something yeah, like that, yeah. right? But almost, I think almost everybody, except for people who really got some problem, right, would be like if they suddenly saw that baby about to fall in, there'd be that alarm and compassion and that first, that immediate moment, that immediate reaction of it, that, that, that isn't to have to be grounded in anything else or justified by anything else and is kind of a good thing about us. So, so if I just go along for the sake of argument and say, yeah, everyone at least has this immediate response of concern, I would still say that that's grounded in the fact that you are a living organism, and it, it's it's um, somehow ties back into your own valuing of yourself, I think. Um, so I'm sorry, you just faded out for a second. My, oh, my own valuing of what of yourself. Oh, so yeah, I think if you don't value yourself, you don't have a reason to value anything else. It's because you value yourself, you're including your own happiness that other things matter to you. If you didn't care about yourself, then nothing else would matter to you, I think. Um, so, uh, but maybe that can be fleshed out a little bit more in, in this case of coming upon, uh, you know, a small child who's falling into a well, I think there's a kind of, um, benevolence. That's a term that comes to mind, uh, that we want translation. Yeah. That, that we, uh, I think it it feels good to us to have to, to see um, other people doing well. Like it's they can be an inspiration to us. They can be an example to us. Um, so I, I think this is one of the value of friends. Um, they're people who are like you, but they're external to you, and they kind of externalize your values. Aristotle had this term of alter ego. They're like another self. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that's a crucial role that other people play in your lives. And if they are like another self, then you want them to do well. They're if um, if someone else is part of your life and can benefit you by being your friend or your romantic partner it's in your interest for them to do well. You don't want to see your own partner miserable and be around some miserable person who's going to, you know, drag you down, always be in a bad mood. Mm-hmm. 
you want to see people who are close to you being well. And I think to a lesser extent, you want to see just anybody doing well, even strangers, um, just because you have a, I, I think it, it's conducive to your own happiness to have a benevolent outlook towards your fellow human beings, unless you know something specific about them that like if it's Hitler, I might say, yeah, <laughs> fall down that well and die. Um, I, I don't want you around. Um, but if it's just a stranger who you don't have any information about, I think it's, it's reasonable um, to, to wish well to, to, to people. And that that's part of having a happy, benevolent outlook, which is in your own interest to have, rather than being a miserable so curmudgeon. I think it is in your own interest. And then the question is whether the fact that it's in your own interest is in some sense the justification or the grounds right so i'm hearing i'm thinking here of fairy frankfurt on love right so frankfurt says that to love someone or something is i might not get it exactly right but it's something like uh to want it to do well or thrive for its own sake right so if i love my wife it's in my interest for my life to do well, right? So for my sake, I want my life to do wife to do well, right? But in a sense, that's treating her as a means to my own happiness. And what it is to love my wife is to want her to do well for her own sake. Um, and then it's a, a wonderful side benefit <laughs> that that's also good for me. And maybe not just a side benefit that underplays its importance, but um, it's not just reducible to the reason that justifies why it's say rational for me to, to want my life to do well is that that will have a, a good effect for me. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Like, I, I think it is, yeah, so I, I guess I agree. It's, it's good for yourself to, for your you know, close, close loved ones to, to do well. Um, but the ultimate justification of that. Sorry for the abrupt ending. Unfortunately, my connection was lost in mid-sentence, so we weren't able to bring it to a smooth close. But I hope you got something valuable out of the discussion. If you'd like to support more videos like this in my work of advancing Ayn Rand's ideas more generally, you can help by liking, subscribing, sharing, and becoming a contributor on Patreon. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you in my next video.